I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Poditors. I hope you're well. In this week's episode, I speak to Shante Joseph. She is a journalist, presenter, and soon-to-be author, which is very exciting. And she's also been gracing our screens on Channel 4's miniseries, How Not to Be Racist, which I really recommend watching if you haven't yet. And also ITV's Has Britain Changed, which was on Thursday, I think. If you haven't watched that, I would also maybe recommend watching it before you listen, as a lot of the conversation is centred around that panel talk, because it was very very interesting to watch it in light of recent protests and conversations, how the media sort of frames these issues. So we spoke about council culture, we spoke about the abolition of the police, and we also spoke about how black women are framed in the media and Shante's personal experience with trolling and abuse online. I really hope you enjoy the episode. I think it's amazing. And as always, please do rate, review and subscribe. Bye. And welcome to Adulting. Today, I'm joined by Shante Joseph. Hey! How are you doing? I am doing okay on this really grey Saturday morning. I know. I thought it was meant to be really hot today. I was so excited. It looks sh- crap. I wish it was sunny as well. I just feel so swindled by the weather. I know. I was planning for like a big weekend. And now tomorrow it's meant to be raining. It's just bullshit. Um, but at least I get to chat to you. So thank you for joining me. So for people who don't know who you are and your work, could you give us a little introduction to you and what you do? So yeah, I'm, I'm Shonday, as you already said. Um, and I do a lot of things. I wear quite a few hats. Um, mainly, um, I do a lot of writing, a lot of journalism on a range of topics. It could be anything from, you know, Love Island through to... Um, Black Lives Matter through to race and identity to music. So I, I just love writing. I love interviewing people. I love speaking to people. Um, and that's like a large chunk of what I do. But I do actually have a normal job and I work at an agency um, and I do social content for their clients. Um, and I also do a little bit of like presenting. So I did a short series with Channel 4 called How Not to Be Racist. Um, and I've done a few other bits as well. And I'm also writing a book about the Black... British Power Movement with uh, Jack Aranda, the publisher, and they are publishing um, a couple of Black British authors' first ever uh, debut nonfiction pieces. So yeah, I'm like, I, I do all the things, but a lot of it tends to be, you know, around the, the realms of like race, identity, feminism, activism, um, kind of all in that space, basically. That is so exciting about your book. I definitely cannot wait to read that. I'm sure it'll be amazing. But we've, as you said, we've seen you on our screens so much. I absolutely loved your like mini series that you did with Channel 4. And I've just watched Has Britain Changed, the panel that you were on for ITV. And you were amazing. Was It's presenting something you've always wanted to go into because you seem so natural at it. Um, yes, definitely. Like I, I really do enjoy it. I really love speaking. I love debating. I love all of that stuff. And if I could do more of it, I, I'd honestly be so happy. Um, it, yeah, something I've done for a long time. Like when I was in school, I used to do um, youth parliament. And so because of that, I used to do a lot of like media appearances, particularly around when we did campaigns like Votes at 16 and kind of all of that jazz. So it's very much like a comfortable space for me. Yeah, that makes so much sense because you did look so comfortable. And I, I really want to talk about that show, actually, because I was watching it and I was like, I'm a, I'm a white woman, it's not even my place to get annoyed. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know how you are staying so calm. So f- for people who don't know, could you give us a, l- a little explanation of, of what that was and what it was about and and, and how did you feel that it, it went? Um, so Has Britain Change was basically a, a program to get people to reflect on the 27 um, years since Stephen Lawrence's death. And essentially it was about saying, 
has society changed, you know, since the McPherson report into, you know, police corruption and institutional racism in the police and, you know, all of these different bits of like inquiries and legislation has have things actually changed. So they brought together a panel, really interesting panel. You had, you know, John Barnes, who was like, I think the first black England player who faced a lot of racism. Sean Bailey, who uh, is the mayoral candidate for the Conservative Party. He's also black. Then you have David Oloshoga, who is a black historian. Um, and you had Stephen Lawrence's brother as well. Uh, and as well as randomly, John Humphreys. Um, and it was just a conversation about, you know, do we feel like things have changed? And they got some, um, they commissioned some data, uh, basically surveying people's views about racism in the UK. And honestly, all of the data was so bleak. Most people felt like racism had either stagnated or increased. Nobody felt like overall it had gotten better. Um, and they spoke so much about racism in education, racism in sport, in media. Um, and it was quite, yeah, it was quite a damning piece of, of data. And essentially, we were the ones to discuss that. So I felt like everyone on the panel, aside from John Humphreys and the woman from the head of the Met Police, or I, I can't remember what her position was, was pretty much au fait and understanding like that data that had been collated. And I think anyone that's a, of a generation that's a, a Twitter user on social media who's engaging with this conversation would have not like been shocked by that. But I think what happens when these conversations get distilled in mainstream media is it goes straight back to this like really basic argument of whether or not there even is like institutionalized racism. And it's really frustrating to watch after what's been going on to see that like even in the mainstream, like that hasn't got better. That conversation was amazing that it happened, but it still wasn't at the level that we've been talking about. Like so many more people than normal have been talking about for a long time. Were you expecting it to be slightly more elevated in terms of like the actual level of understanding that people had or were you not shocked that it kind of is still a bit stuck? That's the thing. I think discussions around racism in in Britain, the whole discourse around race is is so basic. We're still very much stuck on does racism exist. And because of that, when we saw everything that happened with George Floyd and we saw people talking about um, institutional racism in Britain, you know, a lot of people were shocked by it because they still didn't really understand that this even existed. And I think that la- that really slow sort of like very basic discourse was also carried on to the show. And I think for me anyway, I was so much more interested in, I have known racism existed in this country forever and I'm beyond explaining and proving it to people and I'm now in the business of solutions I'm now in the business of getting uncomfortable getting our hands dirty and actually figuring out how we deal with this as opposed to trying to convince people that I you know have experienced this and convince people of my humanity and one of the things that people kept talking about on the show particularly Sean Bailey and John Humphreys was you know we need to get people to to we need to change the perception of of, of black people in this country and we need to be at the the higher echelons of society and we need to be rep- representative and in all of these different organizations and as much as yes representation is important representation is not going to save us do you know what i mean like representation in a lot of problematic institutions doesn't actually do anything to to stop racism happening and um that is kind of one of the biggest generational disconnects i think between maybe my generation and sean bailey and john Barnes's generation um and i also feel like i i def- i wouldn't say that i'm radical but i'm i'm so much more forward thinking and imaginative around how i not only talk about racism but talk about its solutions and for a lot of people if you're only just learning that racism exists when you hear people talking about this is what needs to happen these institutions need to no longer resist or this legislation needs to be passed that is such an intimidating thing because you're still at step one um and i do feel like the media has such a huge role to play in helping to push that discourse it's not enough for us to debate our identity and humanity anymore and our experiences but let's actually start you know to put the fire under the feet of of people who hold power and and make real change yeah and and to the point you said because at one point Sean Bailey said oh i think it's really like problem not problematic but it's like unhelpful when we talk about white privilege and you were quite rightly like no we have to radicalize our language like evidently the issue here is that white people aren't listening and and changing and how how does that feel in the i mean it must be very difficult when you have a, another black person kind of saying something which 
is at odds to what you think is going to bring the movement forward because we know and we see it in more extreme cases someone like Candace Owens in America that when we you have a, a black spokesperson that's perhaps saying similar things to what is going to make white people feel more comfortable it can I can imagine that can be a really tricky thing to navigate because you're on the same page and then it's you're suddenly not yeah this is the thing like I, I think this is what a lot of media programs do even last week when I was on uh Sunday morning live and they had me and then they had another black woman who was you know head uh, president of the free speech union and it's like this is what they do in order to derail our very real experiences and concerns and push for change they get somebody else who's black to be like actually I don't identify with that at all like that's not real we should be able to say what we want and it's like it's quite sad actually because it's part of the reason why the like the discourse is is so behind because we constantly have people planted in different industries and areas to constantly derail the conversation um and it, yeah it is it is quite upsetting and it is quite annoying because a lot of people are just fed up and tired and they don't really want to do what about anymore they just want to get on with things and it just feels so frustrating when you know I've had these lived experiences my friends have had these lived experiences and I want to use the platform that I have or the, any platform that I'm given to really speak about that and really push for change and then I have somebody who looks just like me saying the exact opposite of what I, I want to say and it, it, it really is frustrating and it's done on purpose and it's quite sad but for me I just think I need to keep on using my platform to speak my truth and the truth of others around me. Um, but yeah, it, it really does get frustrating. I think you handled the whole thing so well, though, because it was very on purpose, like provocative. Some of the things like John Humphrey was saying, it was just so frustratingly ignorant that it makes you want to like scream because it's kind of like, I mean, you, you get those things sometimes where you're like, you almost lose all sense of being able to argue when you know that the person on the other end is just going to keep going. They, they're not really listening. They want to be, he said something like, Oh my God. He was like, oh, my children. Um, I thought he was going to say that my children have never experienced racial prejudice. That's what it sounded like he was about to say. But he went on to say, my children have never been racist. And it's like, you, it's, it, he, I don't know why he was on that festival. Like, he's evidently, he's too old and he's white. Like, he's just not going to get it. But even the woman from the Met Police, she was like, evade, she was doing like politician speak, kind of evading the question and going back to this whole thing of like, she was also kind of, but she didn't say it, but it sounded like she was saying like black on black violence without saying it. That's what she was. Yeah. yeah. Did, did you think that? A hundred percent when she was talking. And it's, this is one thing that frustrates me about these shows, right? You have seven people on a panel who all have, you know, strong voices. They're all high profile in their own right. And somebody says something that is slightly off. And it's like, you don't want to, you don't want to leave the conversation too much but you do want to address it, but it's so hard to actually address it because it's like, oh, like now we have to go down this whole route and I've only got about, you know, one minute to get my point across properly because we're going to go into an ad break or we're going to go into more data. And it's like, oh, that really frustrated me, especially because that whole black on black crime thing is like a huge thing that comes up to derail a lot of the conversations around things like police brutality. Yesterday, um, there was a video that kind of went viral of the, uh, a Met police officer kneeling on a black man's neck. This was here in the UK. That video obviously went viral. The officer was um, suspended and put on like administrative leave or whatever. But when I tweeted about it, a lot of people were saying things like, well, he shouldn't have been carrying a knife and black people shouldn't be doing this stuff to each other and blah, 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 blah. blah. And these rhetorics are always used to kind of justify an excessive amount of force used against us. And like when you even think about things like, like black on black crime, even though that's literally like not a thing, like you have to think about where people are. If you live in a predominantly black neighborhood and the, the proximity or the, the, the livelihood of black on black crime is going to be so much higher than you live in, a, if you live in an integrated or if you live in a predominantly white neighborhood. Also like policing in communities in black communities are like it is done so excessively that of course you're going to have people who are overrepresented in things like criminal justice system and all that kind of jazz so it's like all of these things are larger structural issues and when people say well you know why should we care about the police killing you if you guys kill each other it's like I can't believe this is the rhetoric that is coming out of people's mouths 
now. And one thing I really wish I was able to get across on that show is the fact that like liberation for black people is liberation for all people. We are not free until we are all free. And the same systems with which the state will, you know, subjugate black bodies and, you know, ruin our communities and uh, and underinvest in us is the same way they will do it to everybody else. And I, I think that is the the one thing that I, I wanted people to take home. It's like, you can't separate the issue of racism from your your own life. Because if this is how the state thinks it's acceptable to treat a group of people and it works, what's to say that you won't be next? Do you know what I mean? I, I think people really need to understand that and they need to stop separating themselves from the issue of racism or saying, oh, it's a black on black crime thing or blah, 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 blah. Finding ways to justify, you know, really awful police activity because Honestly, anybody can be subject to it. We all live under the same state. So why would it make sense for someone to be treated one way and, and you not? So it is it is really, it's really interesting. And there's just so much I wish I could say, but that black on black crime point, like it really jarred me. But the quickness with which these conversations happen, everybody has a, a one line zinger. You have a one moment to make a salient point. But actually, when it comes to discussing racism, like we need spaces where we can talk about this in much more detail like we can't just you know have catchy phrases or you know sound bites like that is not gonna solve things and it's also not giving the public the opportunity to learn more and be educated so yeah it's just it's so frustrating I completely agree and I thought that when I was watching it I was like shit I wouldn't I'm not very good at not talking so I think I would have found it really hard to condense my point um, I get quite convoluted with stuff and it takes me ages to get to my point. But what I also thought was really damaging is that even though she never said like black on black, you know that what she was saying is that. And what's problematic about that, you're on a show that's supposed to be talking about changing. And she was like feeding in these, these ideas that we already have. And probably that show is going to go out to an audience of people that aren't educated on this issue. And so it's just reinforcing their ideas. And as you say, you then don't have the chance. So whilst it seems progressive, you don't have any opportunity to like kind of delve into what she's saying and be like, do you realize that even what you're saying right now is an example of institutionalized racism? Um, and it was another point that was coming up as well. Again, it shouldn't really talk, give him so much airtime, classic taking up space, but John Humphreys was like, oh, it's improved so much as if that's fine. As if it's to be like, well, we're not being doing like beating you up anymore. So you're not happy that that's like, that's not happening. I just couldn't believe that he, he like, he'd gone, well, it's not as bad as it was. Um, and the last thing back to, because I want to hear more from you, but back to the crime thing, like, we know that men disproportionately commit the most crime and there's never something called man-on-man crime. Right, right. It really is, is really frustrating. And it's annoying as well, because even having John, John Humphreys there as a voice, like, when they told me that they were having him on, I was like, why? This is literally a conversation about has Britain changed for black people? And you've got this, like, okay, I know he's not a random white guy. I know he's, like, you know, a big a big deal. But at the same time, he didn't need to be there. And it's annoying because it constantly feeds into this idea that, like, black people can only have discussions that are valued if there is a, a, a white person there. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's and it just kind of feels like in the films you watch, there always has to be a white saviour. There always has to be a white protagonist and the black characters are just back are back backup dancers basically and that's literally what it felt like in this case it's like he did not have to contribute to that conversation all he did was derail 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 when we were talking about education being a way through which people can unlearn like their racist socialization he was saying things like well white white working class boys are the most disadvantaged when it comes to education and it's like yes that is a true point but that's absolutely not what we're talking about today and I don't want to derail our very valid conversation and that's literally what so many white people do in this in these debates they just derail 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 and it is really frustrating because it's an important conversation that we need to have that as much as I may not have agreed with people like you know John Barnes or Sean Bailey it was an intergenerational conversation between black people that we really needed to have and we really needed to show the generational disconnect and we needed people from the older generation to understand the younger generation we needed people from the younger generation to understand the older generation and that was happening so well and then you just had like John Humphreys who just contributed nothing to the conversation it was like it was beyond frustrating 
And and to the point about young white men not being educated, that's a conversation around class. So when they're talking about austerity or when we're talking about voting, talk about it then, which they don't either. It's just centering whiteness at a point to kind of, as you say, like derail the conversation. I want to try and not talk about him because it's so annoying that he, even now he's fucking taking up space. So uh, the one thing that I've massively been educating myself on is this idea of police abolition because I'd, I remember watching 13th years ago, but I'd never really like tied into really, really like conceptualized the fact that as you spoke about so eloquently, the police is literally designed to oppress black people. I wonder if you could speak on that with um, a bit more clarity and explain it, because I think it's a really crucial part of the argument that's getting um, pushed aside as if it's so radical when actually once it's broken down, it makes complete sense. That's the thing, like, like police abolition for me as well was something that I, I think deep down I always knew that needed to happen, but I didn't have the language, the, the knowledge, and most importantly, the imagination to conceptualize a society that didn't have police. Police is, like, we, we, we live in a, in a police society, we live in a, in a surveillance society, we have police in our films, we have police in our media. Police as a staple part of how we kind of function is so embedded in us that the moment that I heard that we can live in a society without police, I literally tweeted about, it was like seeing a new colour. I was like, oh my God, like it makes sense. Because when I used to complain about, you know, police brutality and people would be like, well, what's the solutions? What's the solutions? And I was like, oh, maybe we need more black police officers or maybe they need like training. But realistically, those things have been happening and nothing has changed. So the only thing we can do is actually tackle the reason why we need police in the first place. And that's because of crime. And crime is so much like people talk about crime as if it's random but crime is not random it is a result of like deprivation it is is a result of you know grooming it's like it's a it's something that builds up in people over time as a result of their surroundings so what can you do to ensure that people don't grow up in a place that eventually leads them to crime you solve serious issues you make sure that you know kids aren't growing up in poor communities and that they have opportunities job opportunities they have education and they have counselling. Do you know what I mean? They come from households where they are nurtured and loved and appreciated and not neglected. You invest in the welfare state. You invest in social services. Do you know what I mean? And, and when people talk about police abolition, it's not something that just happens one day. We're not just going to vote tomorrow to abolish the police and there's no police, but it is a gradual and slow process of taking money out of police and surveillance budgets and investing it back in to communities and resources and all of that jazz. But it's also about as a kind of community and as a society, how we help each other. When we think of a lot of the crime that happens, if kids were taught better how to de-escalate situations, imagine how much we could avoid. It's so, so much of it is also just about like soft skills and giving kids the space to understand themselves and understand interpersonal relationships and how to kind of build a better society and what they can do as individuals. Like, but when you talk about police abolition, people are like, well, what are we going to do about, you know, rapists and murderers and serial killers? But it's, it's not necessarily about having a society that is punitive, but more that is one that is, is preventative. And on the, on the show, I kind of spoke about the fact that 50% of people that go to prison end up reoffending. We don't have a prison system that reforms people. We have a prison system that keeps people trapped. And they also use people in prison as a source of, of cheap labor. So people like you're almost incentivized to have people go into prison to be a source of cheap labor so they can further exploit them. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it, it is like everything about our justice system is just, it, it just doesn't work. There is no space for re- like rehabilitation. There is no space for reform. And even the way we do justice, the way everything is so punitive, everything is so vengeful. Like I remember when, um, the incident happened with Amy Cooper and um, instead of uh, her being convicted or instead of him cooperating with the police, he said, she has suffered enough. I don't want her to go to prison. And a lot of people were like, well, when Amy Cooper called 
the police on you and lied and said, you know, this man is intimidating me and, and, and this man is, you know, trying to attack me. She called the police with the intention of the police coming to arrest and maybe murder a black man. So why should she not have to face that same justice system? And the point here was that if we know that the justice system already kind of persecutes like an unfairly, um, mishandles black people and their cases, why are we then legitimizing the same institution by relying on it for us to to be delivered justice? And so much of what we see as justice in society is not centered around the wants of the victim. Um, In a lot of cases, people can be um, prosecuted for not cooperating with police if they, you know, maybe change their mind later on down the line after trying to, um, after going to the police about an incident. So our our whole justice system isn't even about justice or retribution. It's about prosecuting people and being vengeful and sending people to prisons where they're used as, as cheap labor. So it, it, this, the way we kind of do justice in society wasn't even set up to, to make things better. It was just, it was set up to be an additional vehicle for capitalism. And so like, that's okay. I guess I, I'm not a complete expert on abolition and I I can only talk about what I've read and what I know and what I understand, but that's like abolition is is so much more than one day, no police, no prisons, but like changing society from the ground up and saying we can do things differently. And a lot of it just starts with imagination. And we've kind of been told there's only one way that we can live in society. There's only one way that we can operate. We have police, we have prisons, this equals justice. It doesn't matter if this person reoffends and does the same thing again and again and ruins other people's lives. As long as we feel like under our laws and legislations, we have delivered some form of justice, then that's that on that. Um, but it's about imagining a world that is completely different. And it is it is so possible and it is within reach, it is within our grasp, but we need more people to actually want more and want better for themselves and their society. So it's a it's a whole thing. <laughs> You explain that so well. And and actually, I had the same revelation when I was reading about it. And there was like slides on Instagram of someone saying like what you would on rather than I completely agree with what you say about say about the preventative side, everything comes down to poverty and inequality, which is structured by the capitalist patriarchy that we live in. And that needs to be. But until we can dismantle that, because that's not going to happen overnight, as you say, like I was like, well, then what does happen to these criminals? And I saw this amazing thing on Instagram. And it was like, okay, imagine someone has a mental health breakdown. They start attacking someone. And instead of the police coming, you have uh, a squad of people who are over, like so qualified in dealing with mental health crises. They come along, they talk to the person, they calm the situation down. The person might go and have counseling, whatever it's sorted. Um, a woman is sexually assaulted and there are people who are, and I read it and I was like, of course, this should be what happens. Why is there one group of people dealing with the most disparate set of circumstances. You could have someone steal something from you. You could be raped. You could be, I don't know, come into an altercation and like have a mental health breakdown. That myriad of different instances where you need some kind of policing and vertical commerce should not obviously be dealt with by the same institution. It doesn't make any sense. They're not qualified to be dealing with these situations. And frankly, it's not asking for good enough. As you say, this isn't just for um, black people, though it's like massive. It doesn't, who does it serve? Like these these crimes don't get solved. Anyway, we know that that women who are raped, like none of those cases ever really get taken to court. And they ne- if, if, if they do, it very rarely gets pr- proved. Like the system evidently doesn't work. And what I find so weird about it though, is like once you explain it, and I'm the same as you, like once I started learning about it, I was like this, this world is fact like obviously crime there's a reason for it like people are stealing because they don't have like you don't steal because you have shit and you start to wonder like these people are clever but it's a cognitive dissonance where they're allowing themselves to be ignorant because they could if they really wanted to sit and look like how can how can Boris Johnson pretend that he doesn't know this shit he must know and he must have just decided that he wants power like this is the problem it's more than ignorance it's willful it's like it's violence. Like these people don't fucking care. They just want, they just want power. But I guess you got the same thing. But like when I'm on Twitter, it feels like so great. I feel like everyone's in the conversation. I feel like I'm ready to be called in. People are talking. It's so active. And then suddenly you see the whole world spreading out. I know that you write for loads of different, um, like you write for The Guardian, you write for Galdem. What do you find when you write for a more mainstream publication? Do you, do you, do you recognize a different resistance than when you write for someone like Galdem, for instance? Um, yeah, like it's, it can be such mixed responses. And even when I think about my Channel 4 series, 
when my Channel 4 series came out on YouTube and Facebook, the comments were horrible. People hated it. They dragged me. Within seconds of the video going up, it had like 100 dislikes. And the dislikes were always double the likes. But then when the series was on places like Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat, the perception was completely different. And it's kind of, yeah, the same with some of the articles that I write. If I'm writing something that's in the independent, woo, sometimes depending on the topic, people will go ham. Like they will come for my neck. And then if it's like... um. Gaudem, or if it's in maybe like complex or vice, like the perception is completely, completely different. Like it is just not, it is not like that. Um, and it's quite upsetting. And I guess I would say to, to people, like a lot of activism starts at the home, right? It starts with talking to your family and talking to your friends and convincing them and spending the time investing in helping them see how the world can be different. I talk about abolition with my family all the time and they may not 100% get it or they may not 100% be on board, but I keep having those conversations because I know that's where I have access to people who will actually hear me out. And it's where I can, you know, flesh out arguments and really spend time investing in teaching people who I know are willing and, and want to learn, basically. So it's like I try not to think so much about convincing the masses all of the time. And I try to think about who in my personal life, in my close circle can I speak to about this and convince them and like those small wins are for me way more important than trying to get people who random strangers on the internet with like no profile and 11 numbers in their twitter handle to understand the foundations of abolitionism so yeah you have to pick your battle I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're so right. We all have to unlearn it. Um, and I agree with what you're saying. Like, if we all could just educate those five people around us, then it wouldn't be just people like you trying to fight a battle against, like, there shouldn't just be one spokesperson. Everybody has the capacity to grow and to change. And, like, I know as much as we kind of talk about cancel culture and blah, 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 realistically, the only people who bear a lot of the brunt or a lot of the kind of, um, a, a lot of the attacks from, from people online are people who consistently double down on, on their incorrect views. If you say do you know what? I never thought about it that way. And I hear you out and I'm going to make a concerted effort in the future to not say this or to do better. That is fine. Like, I, I think like forgiveness is always there. And for a long time, I think the media ha have painted, particularly, you know, young people who are socially conscious as this like hungry foam at the mouth mob who literally just want to tear everyone down. But actually, no, we're some of the most forgiving people, but we are so much more direct about what we like and what we dislike and what we find problematic that for some people that is intimidating, but that doesn't mean that you, you are, you know, below being forgiven or you're below the, the capacity in the space for change. I haven't always been perfect. Of course, I've had problematic views when I was in school, but you know what? I've, I've learned and I've grown and people who've helped me to, to better understand, you know, their struggles or other struggles. And now I'm in a place where I can better support them, but also educate people around me about, you know, other struggles that may not necessarily be my own. And I just feel like a lot of people are scared that if they admit they are wrong, that they can't come back for it and they double down. But you have, you don't have to do that. You can just apologize and do better next time. And, you know, you can turn things around. It's interesting you brought up cancel culture then because that was the next thing I kind of wanted to talk about because what's so I feel like these people don't get is I'm I am I feel like I'm quite consciously aware, but it also means that I know if I make a mistake, I'm gonna apologize and I'm gonna like take time off and there might be a time when I, I do something wrong. I'm not worried about getting cancelled because I'm not I will evolve past that 
that opinion what people think cancel culture is is when they're not they feel like they're not allowed to keep saying the thing that pissed people off that's not being cancelled that's being like just so stubborn that it's ignorant what what do you think about this cancel culture debate honestly i just feel like this idea of cancel culture doesn't it doesn't really exist like it's always been that way but now there's just been a power shift between you know people who were you know usually the butt of the joke or people who were usually the ones coming under you know fierce critique or being dragged or being you know made fun of those people now have social capital because of social media because of accessibility because of being hyper visible and they are now calling out the actions and the behaviors that they do not like. And now all of a sudden, because they're doing that, it's like, oh, cancel culture. We can't say what we want to say anymore. This lich- And then they make it about free speech as opposed to being like not racist or not transphobic. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's now just people who were powerful, who had a complete monopoly over a lot of our social discourse and, um, being subject to the same scrutiny that they were kind of treating other people with. And I, and now they've given it a name and they've called them the woke elite, the woke mob. But actually people just want equality. And even when I think about that Harper's letter and how their issue was about, you know, as much as we're happy that conversations have shifted around social justice, we, we do think it has gone too far. And it's like, how can social justice go too far? It's almost like for them, equality is a threat. For them, equality means they're going to lose everything that they have. And it's quite telling that people people having access to, you know, rights or people having um, not being made fun of or people being able to protect their identity is for you insulting and infringes some way on your own freedoms. But it doesn't. But that is what they've been taught. And that is honestly how I think about that council culture debate. And also like, one of the things that I was trying to say on that Sunday morning live program is that when we think about kind of cancel culture and how sometimes it can be like, it can seem quite ruthless with a lot of the online dogpiling. And this is on both sides of the political spectrum. Like I, you know, people are not, I don't think a lot of these right wing trolls can cancel me, but like they can definitely camp in my mentions and they can definitely be angry. But one thing I, I notice is that people are, just kind of people people are reenacting the same sort of vengeful way that we do justice in this country this is the only way people feel like they can have their um voices heard essentially or they can seek some sort of justice for what what they feel is has been done wrong for them and so i i honestly feel like cancel culture is not a new thing but it's it's very much our culture is how we do justice. There is no space for forgiveness. There is no space for reform. There is only punitive measure after punitive measure. There's only prosecution, you know, there's only the harshness of the state. And that is exactly what we're seeing imitated in our online conversations. So it's it's like everything is so interlinked. You don't just decide to cancel someone or you don't decide to cancel someone in a way that can seem particularly harsh. You're just acting in the, in the way that you know how to, to act essentially. But like a lot of people just do not understand that concept of forgiveness and of apologizing and not doubling down. And then they get caught out for it. But at the same time, a lot of the people who are complaining about cancel culture will still have huge commissions in the Telegraph. People will still buy their books. If anything, it, it this whole idea of being cancelled or presenting yourself as being cancelled helps you to tap into a whole new market of, of people, a whole new set of fans, people who want to, who believe that they are the great defenders of, of free speech. Like, you know, they then flock to you and, and you grow a whole new platform. Like Casey Hopkins had millions of followers. Like, you know, there was no way she was cancelled and she can complain about being cancelled. But the only reason why they took her Twitter account down is because she was not following the rules and she was promoting hate speech and violence. So, you know what I mean? Like being, being cancelled is not being, um, is, is not when you have to receive certain, like, I guess, um, actions or consequences for your actions. That's not cancel culture. That's just what it is. If, if I go and I steal a laptop from Mac in central London and then like I get arrested or whatever, 
that is like essentially how the, the world works. So you don't get to be above it all and you don't get to scream cancel culture if you've just broken the rules. Um, but that just seems to not be missing from, from, from people when they talk about this and they've made it more about, I can no longer be a racist homophobe. So I, I'm being cancelled and they're impinging on my free speech as opposed to maybe what I'm saying is actually a bit problematic and I should really just listen to people who know their stuff. There's so much I want to pick up on that. And I think the first thing I want to say is like one of my favorite quotes, which is um, equality to the privileged feels like oppression, which I think is what you were basically saying. And I think that's completely true. When someone like Piers Morgan is told that he can't use a certain word, he feels like that's just as threatening as that person experiencing the violence because of him using that word. Like that's the conflation. It's like the idea of white people are more afraid to be called racist than to than to commit a racist act. Like they'll happily be racist, but they don't want to be called racist. That's like duality. And I, I wonder if it comes down to this idea of like, punch down from the government which we kind of get we're told so much that we have so much agency and that we can make all these choices when really we're not like that we don't really have any control when it comes to what happened I mean we we can make massive movements that's why civil rights movements work and that's why these huge protests are actually creating change but for the most part this like little infighting that goes on and people really think they're doing something you're not doing nothing's changing um everything just stays the same. And I thought it was interesting you were saying that whilst they're not going to cancel you, I wanted to ask you, how do you deal with that barrage of abuse? Because that is, that's what people are saying when they get cancelled. They didn't like it because as you said, they've been called up for their consequence, for consequence of their action. Whereas you're getting, it's, I don't think it's a consequence. It's people feeling defensive about you holding up a mirror to society. That's what people are taking um, offence to. But how do you actually cope with that? For me, like I've really really had to set up a lot of filters on social media like a lot of filters like people who don't have like emails attached to their accounts people who don't have um uh profile pictures people who made their account like a day ago and stuff like that I will not see any of their notifications like I will not see it at all and I've just like tried to you know for sometimes on my Instagram I change it so you can't leave a comment unless you follow me um and like all that kind of stuff so I can just really protect myself from trolling because it does get a lot and like yeah I've, I've had some serious trolls particularly when I was at uni and I did a lot of student activism and like sometimes the activism would end up like in in the sun or the daily mail and the barrage of like hate I would get it would be awful like it would be terrible and I just I remember just some of my lowest points like being afraid to leave my uni accommodation. I, I mean, I didn't know if anyone would beat me up, but I obviously didn't want to stick around to find out. And um, it was, yeah, it was really, really tough for me then. And I think because I've dealt with it so much, I'm starting to feel a bit more comfortable and a bit more confident um, of, with how I deal with it and my social media settings and not searching my name on Twitter, not searching the hashtag of the shows I've been a part of. Like I completely just separate myself from it because a lot of the time it's not a constructive debate. And even if I think about the backlash from, um, from what's it called, from uh, the, sh- the how, how has Britain changed? Like a a lot of it wasn't even people disagreeing with my points, but it was people being like, you, you're angry, you're aggressive. You would, you know, we would listen to you more if you weren't so hysterical. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and it's just things like that. It's like, you don't even want to have a debate. You don't want to have a conversation. It's not that you particularly disagree with what I'm saying, but it's the fact that I'm a, a black woman who is vocal and confident and won't be spoken over and will hold her own that it makes you so mad. Um, and that is just like the wildest thing of it all, because it's almost just like, fair enough if you disagreed with my points, but you just disagree with me as a person having a platform and there really isn't much I can do about it. So I just have to filter out as much of that stuff as possible. It's really devastating to think that like as a young woman at university, you're not only like working so hard that activism is one of the hardest jobs you could ever do and to put yourself in that position when you know that there's going to be people against you and then to actually have that is is awful and no one should should have to deal with that and I I did see because I think you retweeted someone saying like oh she's just aggressive and I just thought oh my god first of all Shantae you were not aggressive you spoke so well you were so much calmer than I could ever have been I think I would have like been fizzing in the chair because it was just so you were so calm but all they see is black and woman and then that's what they're so 
that you could have been smiling the whole way through and they would have called you aggressive because of fucking the, the way that people treat black women in, in society. But the one thing I think is great, though, is that you are now being platformed and you are becoming like a face that people are going to know. And does that make you feel safer because you have, I guess, the clout of like mainstream media behind you a bit more? Or does it make you feel less safe? How How is that shaping you? Because fame's a weird thing. Like th- the minute you get on TV, you know, I guess that your, your percep- public perception changes. How does that feel? I think it's a, it's a weird one because for me, like I I don't mind the kind of the visibility if I have my own if I have an extended a, a space where I can have extended conversations. I don't want to only be you know known because of like sound bites or I don't want my only contribution to things to be something that I say for two minutes on on a TV show. Like I really need my own space to delve further into those issues because obviously those things kind of motivate people and inspire people and get you thinking. But then it's like, what do we do beyond that? There's so much learning that needs to happen. There's so much learning that I need to do. And I really need the space to do that, but not not in kind of like five minutes. And so in in a weird way, like I I like the I like that the visibility will give me more options to speak or more opportunities to speak about what I know and what I'm passionate about. But I'm also like, hmm, I really need spaces where I can continue and extend these conversations so they don't just end up being one-sided or they don't just end up being like one-line zingers as opposed to like really fleshed out ideas and solutions that help give people the language to 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 fight their own battles if you know what I mean no completely and what you were saying again about that like why were there so many people on that panel because I feel like when we have maybe a different debate uh, and you have a program about it often it will be just like a one-on-one interview but when it's race because it's coming away from default white I think people get so scared that, like, oh my God, we've got to balance up. Whereas like every TV show up until whenever did like would only have maybe one black person in the background and no one ever was like, well, this isn't balanced. And I think I find it funny when people say about this social justice going too far or this free speech movement, because especially because lots of them were old school feminists and anyone knows that with any kind of, to get the pendulum swing, you have to go. And I, I don't think anything that you do is fucking radical in terms of what you're talking about. It's not extremist. It's like it makes complete sense to get it to some form of equality and equity. But I think you do have to push so far. Like I think the feminist argument, I think it has to go so far the other way just in order to get to the middle. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if I'm explaining that well. Yeah, I see you mean. Like it, it, sometimes it has to be like so radical or like you can't just be moderate. You can't just kind of explain the situation. You have to be quite almost dramatic because that's how we kind of do tv and even news in this country everything is so theatrical so it's like you have to play up to it if you want to be given the 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 space and the airtime to say what it is that you want to say and it's like it's so unfortunate but it's like the way the media circus kind of works Mm. and I think I think as well because if there's any bit of like caveating where you're going for instance let's use the like not all men thing for example so if you're talking about the the sexism whatever and someone says not all men that literally makes every man think it's not them and I think it's the same with racism like we have to say like white people are institutionally racist and that's all white people and then people get so offended but it might make them think if you say oh racism is just these acts and these covert and you give examples people find ways to keep the status quo because they exclude themselves from the narrative and I think this is what people who haven't maybe become who haven't educated themselves on Britain's colonial past and institutionalized racism they are the ones that do not deserve any kind of coddling because you won't learn you'll simply just go oh that's not about me then yeah essentially and that's why we have to be so direct and that's why I kind of constantly made that point about language because if you cloud your language and you play to the sensibilities of people then they kind of feel disempowered like they don't feel like they have to do anything they don't feel like they're part of the problem they separate themselves from the problem but in a way everybody is is complicit in everything that's happening and we all have to be like introspective and think about the ways that we contribute to harmful systems like nobody is innocent as long as you live in this society that's institutionally racist everybody plays a a part of keeping that 
together. So I kind of just feel like, yeah, I, 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 I try to be as clear as I can, particularly when I have these platforms, because I'm like, I don't want anyone to misinterpret what I'm saying or feel like they are above this issue or it's out of their control because we all have a role to play. Completely. And one of the questions, which I always think is like, I sometimes ask stuff like this. And then when I watched someone else asking, I kind of felt a bit jarring. But the last question on the show was like, do you feel hopeful? Um, And everyone was kind of like, yeah, but do you think, because it's something I've asked before, but actually watching it play out, do you think questions like that are kind of unhelpful as well? Um, It shouldn't even be about hope. It should be about solutions. Do you know what I mean? Like, what do you think we could do better or how can we change the justice system or in what ways are we complicit in it as opposed to ending on this idea of hope? Because, I mean, hope is nice and I can kind of hope all I want. But at the end of the day, if if I'm the only person who feels like I need to do any work to solve things, then nothing's going to change. So it's so much more about like, in a weird way, kind of convincing people that you know, the world can be different and you, we don't live in this society because this is how we are as humans and it's in our bodies, but it's how we're socialized and we can all do the work to, to undo that as opposed to being like, oh, things are going to get better, but how, you know, we need to tell people how they'll get better. So that's kind of what I think about it. Was there any question on that show that you wish you had been asked? Like, did you go on it thinking, oh, I really want to make this point? Um, I think definitely I wish we spoke a bit more about like healthcare, And I wish we spoke a bit more about racism. Out, I know I know it was about Stephen Lawrence, but I think even the, the data that they collected, they collected data about like, you know, microaggressions in the workplace and touching black women's hair. And if people felt like the NHS was racist and if they felt like education was racist, like there is so much that, that I wish we kind of spoke about in terms of like real life examples and, and institutions and all of that stuff, particularly around healthcare with, you know, black women dying five times more during childbirth. Like I wish we kind of spoke about those things because I think that would have been really impactful. I thought it was quite interesting that the statistics and the data were opinion based, because as you say, there's like literal evidence for um, institutionalized, we've seen it with COVID, like the institutionalized racism directly impacts how things happen. And I wonder if that's maybe because we don't have the metrics um, in place in order to make these these measurements. And it had to be opinion-based because as we know, data isn't generally collected um, on this stuff. So I thought, I, I agree with you. I thought that was quite interesting. She also just said, she was great, but she did just say, oh, but like positively people thought the NHS was much better. But I wonder if that's just because the NHS has diverse staff, because as we know, black people aren't like, there's massive institutionalized racism, um, within the, the healthcare system. And I think maybe visibility wise, it looks better, but I don't think that I don't think it is better in practice. And like, obviously we've just seen that YouTuber who so sadly passed away with her. Um, sorry, this has been such a heavy chat and I feel bad, but, it, but it's been so amazing to talk to you. Is there anything else that I'm so excited about your book and a huge congratulations again. Is there anything you want to point people in the direction of that you're working on or that you'd like people to look at? I think, yeah, check out the Channel 4 series, like really engage with some of the stuff that I talk about there. I'm always posting stuff on my Instagram and I'm kind of always, I'm looking to do a few more chats with people, particularly with abolitionists, so we can break down a bit more what abolition means and and the ways in our personal life we can practice abolitionist principles around discipline and all of that kind of jazz. So yeah, just just keep up with me on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, and yeah, that's, that's what I can think of at the moment. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me, Shante. It's been such a great chat. Thank you. No worries. Thank you everyone for listening and I will see you next week. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.